Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 472 of the podcast. It's March 29th, 2023. My guest today is Mitt Vias. He is the managing director of a company called Gemba Automation. To learn more about him and for links, look in the show notes or go to leanblog.org slash 472. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Mitt Vias. He is currently managing director for Gemba Automation. He started his career at Toyota. He worked for many other large corporations, and then he founded Gemba Automation. It's a company that's helped customers in software, medical devices, fashion, and construction develop profitable and sustainable businesses. So we're going to hear about that career journey and learning and evolution today. Mint has a degree in mechanical engineering from um, Cal State Poly in Pomona, and uh, the website is gembaautomation.com. So Mint, thank you uh, for joining us here today. Welcome. How are you? Well, thank you, Mark. I am excited and ready to get going. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's going to be great to hear um, stories and, and lessons learned along the way. Um, I've already kind of given away at least the the short answer to the question I like to ask guests of like, you know, what was your lean or TPS origin story for you? Is it Toyota? So fill fill in the details. Like, what was it like being there? Sure, sure. So my lean origin story was I began as a employee of Toyota at the age of twenty. <laughs> So I learned very young about TPS, learned a lot about the development structure that the company had to offer. But I mean, if you rewind back, uh, the I think it's a pretty funny story on how I actually ended up at Toyota. So in, in terms of, if you take a look at any system, right? And you look at overall system, you say every system has inputs and then they have outputs, right? And when I went to school, I kind of tried to figure out how to apply that to the career that I got, right? So I took a look at school as a system. I said, okay, I'm putting in grades, I'm putting in time. And then, but but the output that I need from that schooling is to get a good job, right? And in Cal Poly, they had what's called a career setting. So I'm like, I, I, I started thinking, I said, wait, what does this career, what, how can this career center help me facilitate this output that I want with getting a, getting a good job? So, I mean, in college, I was in a fraternity and we did a lot of volunteer events for the career center. We helped them out with a lot of the job fairs. So me and the career center employees were on very, very, very good terms because I gave them free labor, basically. <laughs> And it, it, in return, what at one time Toyota was hiring this uh, process engineering intern. So they wanted to fill this role immediately. So they contacted the career center and it was, they had to fill this role within two or three weeks. So the career center said, well, I know one candidate that's just helped me out. So with, <laughs> with my solid 2.5 GPA, <laughs> I was able to, to get a, get a get one of what would be called a a, a world class company out mm-hmm. of schooling. So you know I've always been uh, infatuated by this concept of how to maximize your outputs. Yeah. By not providing the exact inputs, and uh, Toyota gave me the first example of how to do that. Yeah. So where, what facility was that? Tell us a little more. Little, little sure. Context so, of the work you did. Yeah, absolutely. So I was hired at the TABC. So it's the facility that is in Long Beach. And actually, it's Toyota's first North American plant. I mean, it's a small facility. They primarily they did stamping and they did, uh, they did stamping and they did welding for uh, truck beds. But I mean, it was an auto body plant. But what I did was, they had a, I don't know if you, there's a Hino truck. So Hino is basically the same size as the Penske. So in, in, in Japan, right? So in Japan, a lot of the trucks that they have in Japan 
the driver sits above the engine because they want to conserve space, right? Now in America, we don't really do that here. We want the bigger truck. We want the engine in front. So they had to redesign a truck for the American market. Yeah. So they had a bunch of Japanese work standards and they had uh, American work staff. So they needed somebody to come in and create process instruction sheets using the Japanese work standards, communicating with the Japanese staff, and then spending the time on the floor to be able to explain it to the American team members. And that's that's what I did. And we actually offlined a complete vehicle. So it was all assembly. We we had a dyno. It was, I mean, it was quite the way to begin my professional journey. <laughs> yeah. So um, when you talk about inputs and, and outputs, um, it's kind of a famous type, you know, Toyota type story of saying, well, you know, they, they don't give you the answer. They'll let yeah. you figure things out. They'll give you a direction. They'll, they'll coach you, but they won't tell you exactly how to do something. Was it similar when you came in, no experience with building trucks of thinking, well, how, how am I supposed to do this work? How am I supposed to create the instructions? Yeah. How am I supposed to train people? I'd be curious to hear more about that. Sure. So uh, let, let me uh, give you a little bit of a, a movie. So before I was, my job that I had before Toyota is I was selling board shorts and bikinis at Quicksilver in Laguna Beach. <laughs> so I was sitting at the beach. I was uh, selling uh, beach apparel and I was, I mean, it was sunny, beautiful, amazing. And then I got this job at Toyota. And my boss, who or the person that hired me there, I mean, I learned a significant amount from him. Uh, George, who was George New, was the guy that hired me there. And he tells me during the interview, he said, "Hey, you have no problem getting here at four thirty in the morning, right?" And I'm thinking, he's got to be joking. And sure enough, he he wasn't. So, it, in terms of what I think was the greatest uh, addition to my development was the sheer amount of time that they they have you spend on the production floor. So they very, very quickly make you realize what actual fact is and what the real world is. So I went from the beach to sitting on a, at 4.30 in the morning, sitting on a production plant taking time studies and figuring out how long it's uh, why, why we're not meeting tap in certain ways. So uh, the first answer to your question is that I think the, the extreme importance in understanding what true facts is and just forcing people to spend that much time on the production board. And that, that, that just adds a lot. The, the, the other thing is the leadership there if you take a look like a Venn diagram, the first Venn diagram being real world thinking, mm -hmm. and then the other Venn diagram being strategic thinking. For some amazing way, Toyota had a ability to merge those two together, which, mm. is, which is actually pretty rare in this world. Yeah. So why, follow-up question, why 4.30 in the morning? I mean, that to, to beat LA area traffic or, or why? why so no, they, they, they started their first shift at that time. And I mean, if it, well, I think 5.30, but then they, it was a very, again, in terms of the, in, in terms of the, the culture there, it was, if I'm an engineer and I'm going to be there, and I'm going to show that I'm there for the production floor. And if I get in at 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. and the production team members are getting in there at 5, it just shows that you have no skin in the game as to when you are going to show up. So I think it was a very... Yeah. And the other thing is they may just try to see if I could do it and <laughs> seeing, seeing uh, how well I, I, I would stick. <laughs> So it seems like it's a matter of showing respect to the team members that yeah, I'll be here absolutely. supporting you. Um, and then maybe it was a question of how, how much does Mitt want the job? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and it was hard at first. I mean, I, I even fell asleep on the production floor one time. And <laughs> the amount of, 
the amount of grief that I took from that from the team members on the production floor was enough for me not to do it ever again. So, I mean, it was a funny story because I ended up in on great terms and I learned a lot from the company, but yeah. yeah oh man, it was, it was quite the, <laughs> quite the learning process. But at least they gave you a second chance after that mistake, if you will. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, maybe we can maybe bounce back and forth a little bit between, you know, your, your time at Toyota and other companies and, and how you're applying, um, you know, different things you've learned at um, Gemba Automation. But you know, I, I love this idea. Let, let's dig into this idea of like, you know, the actual fact or, you know, a phrase right. I use that I think has been influenced by some of this um, from former Toyota people is the real reality. And that sounds redundant. Mm-hmm. But like, do you really know what's going on um, as opposed to hearing a report, seeing data, going out to the factory floor, the Gemba, if you will, um, seeing seeing things firsthand? You know, I'd just be curious curious to hear some of your reflections about that idea as you've been in other organizations, either times where you've seen people get tripped up because they didn't know the actual fact or how, how do you help make... Yeah, so yeah. Going, so, going that way. I think the quote for that kind of exemplifies this. You ask the hard questions first, and that equals the easy life. You ask the easy questions first, and that equals a hard life, right? So, what the the main thing that the leadership kind of instilled was, if you wanted to point out something on the production floor, it was more of a fact of show me, and the, you. The, the leader would walk you to the production floor and to to understand that. And it, in addition to that, I think the 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 one of the biggest valuable areas was they had a good way of making your thinking visible, right? So uh, I there's a concept. I mean, I'm sure your audience knows. We have a problem solving A3s, right? Mm-hmm. So in terms of problem solving A3s, what you have to do is you go from steps one through eight or one through six, and then you have to essentially solve a problem at the end of that, right? But then, so my my boss when I was there, who, who I mean, I, I owe a significant amount to, I'll even, I mean, his name is John Sugup, and he's still at Toyota. And he... Essentially, what he did was give me a challenge, and then I would go have to. I want you to figure out the current state of how the our propellers are installed in our trucks. I'd go, I sketch out what I thought was happening, and then what the A3 did was it made you able to make what is in your mind very organized on paper, right? And it kind of showed your overall thinking pattern. Now, it, as I kind of progressed, it was the organizations that were was first figuring out how to figure out what actual facts are. And then in addition to that, the way that they do it is to try to figure out ways to make your thinking visible, right? Whether it's something tangible that they can see on how you think, that was so I essentially I was uh, after a while I'm like, w- w- I said, wait, th- these these A3s are they're not really for this piece of paper that I have in front of me. They're for they're for my manager to be able to guide my problem solving thinking. And the A3 is a way for me to extrapolate what's in my mind on this piece of paper. So I think it, the one of the things I've noticed, I mean, I work for basically all, if you take a look at overall market cap and the companies that I've worked for, I've gone from <laughs> Toyota and it's slowly trickled down. But as, and luckily smaller organizations have a, a little bit of a better ability to have fact more visible because there's less bureaucracy that has to go mm-hmm. up, right? Yeah. And when you talk about making that thinking visible, I mean, it seems like then it's easier to coach somebody. Yeah, and for you to get coaching in that environment, maybe now you're 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 the one being the coach. But yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear more about 
your experiences or insights around, you know, it's not just writing the document, but the collaboration, the questions, the coaching. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the the coaching that was given there was a combination. So in terms of the development that Toyota brought you through, so they made sure that you had your foundations before they built on top of it, right? You, you're really not going to understand how to problem solve anything if you don't know what standard work is, right? So if you don't know what the basics of tap time are and the basics of work content are, you're really not going to be able to learn on top of that, right? So I think in addition to development classes that they had me take and the coaching that came from the leadership there. So the coaching that comes from the leadership there, it was very strict. It was, I I only will pay attention if I believe that the facts are what the facts are. And I think in general, you know, as we, everyone has the ability to, in their mind to, you, you have a lazy approach to, to, making covering up this and you know you're doing something that you really shouldn't be doing and Toyota has a a good way of taking a knife to that and basically uncovering that this is the actual facts Mm. can can you is there an example that comes to mind yeah sure so uh, absolutely so in in uh, the example that I had I had mentioned to you right so we were so we were tasked with installing the propeller shaft. So the propeller shaft is the the thing that sits underneath the truck, right? And the current stage that we were delivering it was causing a lot of wait time because there's a lot of team members that had to wait to install something because this wasn't there, right? And then the obvious solution was obviously, okay, so we need to move it further upstream or in the process so people don't have to wait for it to be installed, right? So if you take a look at that example, that's the overall valuable, that's the overall message is, okay, it needs to be installed at that time, right? But then if you take a look at the current state, if I were to jump to conclusion, say, okay, instead of being installed in group three, I want it to be installed in group two. Okay, very easy solution. But then you take a look at what the actual facts are on the production floor. Okay, so why is it installed at this certain time? So it was important for it to be installed at that at that point because immediately we had to hook another component to it, right? So rather than moving it upstream, what I did was we had to create a subassembly cell that would do all the work that need to be that needed to have been done beforehand to be able to install it to that location right so i wouldn't know what the facts were if i didn't spend i mean x amount of time on the production floor so every time i would learn something i would have to come back and i would say okay this is what I'm learning. This is what I'm learning. Okay, so how, how how do you solve that problem? How do you solve that problem? And you know, you were a process engineer, so you're pretty tightly connected to the shop floor. Did you see similar behaviors modeled by managers and leaders above you in terms of them going out to make sure they understood the real reality? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, all of our report outs were on the production floor with all the team members that are standing up and showing respect to the people on the production floor, right? So if you take a look at what a quote-unquote corporate report app would be in the corporate sense, it's sitting in a conference room, every all the leaders are sitting down and there's one person talking, that person's talking and they're kind of above everyone. Whereas on the at Toyota, you're on the production floor and you're reporting out there and every single person is standing. And it also, if you're going to ask questions, you're going to make sure that those questions are valuable because everyone is standing on the production floor and no one really wants to waste anyone's time. Mm. 
So, you, so it wouldn't you, you you wouldn't have expected somebody to um, just be talking and grandstanding, or they're they're going to use that time efficiently and respectfully. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also they they give you they avoid the it's on the next slide phrase, meaning they let you go through their your entire presentation, and they'll take a mental log as to the questions they want to ask, and then they'll fire away three to five absolutely pointed questions that makes you feel that they were first listening to what you were saying in addition to asking you the right question to challenge you in the right way. Mm. So Matt, I want to come back to, there, there's another word um, you used earlier that I know has a lot of meaning to people at Toyota. The, the, there's that word challenge, right? So people yep. a lot of times know the word Kaizen or uh, you know, continuous improvement or Maybe I, I ask you what, what that word means. Um, let, let's do that first, actually. So, I mean, there's direct translations, then there's context. So before we get to challenge, like what, what did the word Kaizen come to mean to you at Toyota? Sure. So, I mean, obviously, the direct translation is 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 good change, right? Uh, but in terms of, I thought of Kaizen as more of a, a personal journey, meaning if I took a look at every year or every year and I looked back as to the amount that I learned and developed as a result of what I learned there, it was you basically understanding how to suppress nervousness and you not knowing things in your mind. So what I mean by that is, I mean, when I first got there, I, was, I, I had no idea how I was going to do anything. I mean, I, I was, how, what I learned there could, in a year, if I take a look at where I was, I was really nervous about what I was trying to, trying to do there. I was really nervous about. So it was more to me about suppressing the nervous thought as to whether I could accomplish something and changing for the good in that way and then they gave you another project and you know anytime you're given a challenge or a project you get a little nervous and you're you're a little worried that you're not going to be able to accomplish something but then you start you're chipping away at it one step after the other after the other after the other and i mean it may not be this is why the toyota kata example is so important because it's not a journey from here to here like this it goes like this to here right and for me, Kaizen and challenge means to understand that humans are inherently going to be nervous about things that they can't uh, see themselves accomplishing at that time, but being able to have the systematic thinking and systematic problem solving approaches to accomplish that. Right. And I mean, I'm sure everyone is going to start skiing for the first time you're going to be nervous and you're not going to be confident about it. But essentially once you start learning and once you start breaking it down, it becomes a lot simpler. Yeah. So you kind of tied together those two concepts, Kaizen and challenge seem to be very interconnected and, you know, they hired you to do something you hadn't done before compare that to a lot of companies who only want to hire somebody who's proven that they can, they've done the exact same job in a very similar setting yeah. before but that doesn't really lead to a lot of growth and people complain about, well, you know, they only want to hire me for a job I've already done. I want to do something new. And it seems like that, that challenge or, you know, that opportunity um, to do something new combined with coaching, you know, it leads to people development. That's good for the employee and the company. And, you know, Toyota's often described, I've heard, I've interviewed some of them, Toyota people who say, you know, Toyota is a people development company. Like what, what was your experience around, around that, that idea? Yeah. I mean, that was, I had a, maybe a lucky approach to, I didn't really have very many bad habits that they had to scrub away because I, because I started working there, or I mean, just before my 21st birthday. So, I mean, I was, very, very, very new. So they had uh, a blank slate. I mean, the only thing I knew there was uh, before then was a few engineering terms. I knew that 
I liked certain sports teams and I knew that I liked the outdoors. But before then I was I was a lot more green and 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 now even I catch myself with the same exact I mean I I even joke that my wife knows what I she'll even say oh, what's the current state of something or it's the same type of terminology that I'll use is to, okay, well, what's the standard work? Where is the standard work? And I mean, she'll even give me some, some, some hard, a little bit of a hard time, but okay. I think we need a PDCA this, but like, okay. I, but it's, it's, uh, it's something that's just ingrained in me. And I mean, yeah. I'm, I feel fortunate enough for that. Yeah. So then, um, Another thing I was going to ask you was, you know, I, I think of Kaizen and Challenge. I think back to um, the first chapter of a, a book I love called Toyota by Toyota. It was written by Daryl Wilburn and Sammy Obara and some other colleagues from Toyota, Kentucky. Um, in that first chapter, they talk about Kaizen, Challenge. I forget the exact order. Maybe first in that in that that grouping of three things is the word humility and leading with humility. I'm curious to hear your reflections on that leadership style. Um, yeah, I'll give like you part, a of that part of that humility is going to find out, do you really know something instead of assuming? But what, what else? Yeah. I'll give you one perfect example. Anytime you brought any person in uh, a high leadership position, walking in a production floor, if they saw one piece of trash on the production floor, they were picking it up. Yeah. Not telling someone so, else to do it. They were picking it up. They were picking it up. They, they understood that if they would like the team members to have a certain mentality when they come to work, they have to embody that. So, I mean, even to the, to this day, if I am walking a production floor and I see something, I'll, I'll pick it up. But I mean, it's, it's, it, it just shows that the level of leadership that they're willing to give and it shows that they're humble. I mean, as someone that's a general manager will pick up a piece of trash and throw it that way because that was just the what we did. And they're probably leading by example in, in all sorts of ways. I think you've sort of touched on that a little bit. I, I recently in December had a chance to go visit um, the, the Toyota Georgetown plant for the first time. I've been to other Toyota plants um, in Texas and, and Japan and, you know, it's first time back in a little while because of pandemic times, but you know, you're struck by the sense of discipline, um, for example, like, you know, uh, standard work, if you will, and, and safety around walking. Like, you know, you see people walking within the painted yeah. lines. You don't see people rounding corners. You see people stopping and pointing, you know, when they're going to go cross. And, you know, you, you can't tell exactly by the way people are dressed, what level they're at in the organization, but you yeah. get a sense of what, whether people were wearing hard hats or maybe a little bit more office clothes, there was a consistent yeah. discipline. Like I would, I would be completely surprised if I saw a Toyota executive, you know, violating some of those guidelines that they want everybody to be following. And a lot of organizations don't have that same modeling or, or discipline from leaders. Like they want other people to follow the rules, but then maybe sometimes, you know, let's say yeah. a factory where, you know, a, a leader would come out without wearing safety glasses. Like, you know, to me, that's awful. Like that's not good leadership. Yep. And I mean, there, if the purpose of us having PPE is to keep humans safe, then every human that goes on the production floor should act that way. And then it, it, it also makes it a lot harder if you're trying to enforce PPE. If look, this manager just walked across the production floor. He not he or she's not even wearing uh, any PPE. So I mean, it it makes enforcement a lot easier because you don't get a lot of the leadership that's not paying attention to the rules. Yeah. So let's let's jump ahead and let, let, uh, let's talk about your company Gemba Automation. Like you, yep. my understanding is you don't have a factory floor with painted lines, but there's no. you know, there's ideas that that you've brought from you know previous steps in your career um, to to Gemba Automation. Um, and I hope I I'm gonna I'm afraid I'm gonna slip and say Gemba Academy because those are my friends at yeah, a different yeah, company yeah. in a different podcast. So I don't think I've slipped up, but now. 
hopefully I've got that out of my system if I did. Gemba automation, like what, how do you apply, you know, PDCA thinking um, to starting a company? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so if you take a look at, first, I'll give you the correct answer to that. Uh, the, the best time uh, and what you learned at Toyota was, let's just say you were in a, here's an example is we're in a stock room, right? And you're in a stock room, you want to see what percent of the inventory in this stock room is not needed, right? Uh, you could essentially take inventory of every part number in the stock room and you could say, okay, now that I've inventoried every part number, I think the amount of scrap or the amount of items that we don't need is probably about uh, 60%, right? But then Toyota and I guess the lean philosophies is a little different. It's what amount of data and, and stats do I have in order to create an action, right? So they, in that process, they would say, okay, what we want to do is clean our warehouse and make sure we're only using, keeping stuff. So if they would say, okay, well, I'd say the scrap rate, I surveyed, I don't know, 50 part number. I'd say a scrap rate is about this much amount. So we need to call a certain team in to start removing a lot of the scrap, right? So the biggest thing that you learn from that is the, the action is significantly more important than the perfect analysis, right? So in terms of starting a company, you're really not going to do much unless you just do, right? And the PCA, it's more of an understanding as to how much time to spend in the P so you can D correctly. <laughs> Right. And in a very similar concept was, OK, so you, you have an, an MVP, which in the startup term is a minimum viable product, which is do you have something that your customers can have can attain some value out of? Right. So there there's companies that will spend a lot of time coding or building and then they don't get customer feedback till much, much later in the process. So the what Toyota taught me is in PCA, you just learn as much as you can do. And then you have the check and the act at the end that corrects. And so you can pivot correctly, right? So it's a matter of how to use those fundamentals to making sure that, okay, I have enough, uh, I've built the product or the service enough that I can send it to my customers and get some feedback or send it to customers and not get very much feedback, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. that that's one of the big fundamentals. Um, and, and so in terms of our company, and you said we don't have a, a production floor, right? So uh, one of the big things you learned at Toyota was everyone has a customer, right? Everyone has a supplier and everyone has a customer. So uh, engineering is essentially the supplier to supply chain because they're creating the part that supply chain needs to order, right? And a lot of times on the production floor, or one of the things that I saw was that a lot of the waste was the result of the supplier uh, not creating the correct product or part, right? So what uh, I wanted to do with Gemba Automation was start very early in the product development process, right? So we do a lot of uh, design automation in addition to in either SolidWorks or Inventor. And in addition to that, we have, we understand that, okay, well, what's the customer of the design group? It's the machine shop, right? So we will have uh, some team members that do CNC programming and the communication on how to communicate that this part is designed correctly so it can be machined correctly is where is the direction that we wanted to take. So uh, you all, I mean, every time the engineers or the team members on the production floor, they're putting together a part and they say, I don't know what the designer was thinking. 
So what I wanted to do was try to start a company to address that ex exact processes, um, start early, early on a design and have them be able to communicate to how this is going to be programmed and this is going to be machined to essentially give our customers the, the correct value in product development starting from right when you open your SOLIDWORKS window. Yeah. And and so, I mean, did you literally, like, did you think through this as an A3 problem-solving process? Of like, what's the background? What's the problem statement? Like, how tightly did you have that problem statement defined before working on understanding the problem and 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 the company being a countermeasure or countermeasures? Yeah. So the problem was basically loud enough for for a countermeasure to be put in place. And I mean, it was we we wanted to make sure that we addressed now that I mean now that we have the ability to in the digital world we have I mean CNC programmers that can be outside of a facility because they can just take a look at the code and how it's running and whether the, the the code is running correctly and designers outside of the facility so in the digital world you're able to do this so. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we were doing is combining technology with uh, lean implementation and problem solving. So the answer to, I mean, that Venn diagram in the middle was where I would want to, to build a company. Yeah. So when you say the problem statement was loud, I mean, did how how deeply did you have to go into understanding causes of the problem and what you know to think through? If even to root causes, could you have countermeasures that address the root causes, or is it enough to address the problem as it? Was yeah, I mean, itself? it's it's a the the temporary countermeasure. If let's just say you're trying to machine a radius, right, and the the tool is getting snagged a little bit more, right, you could run it at different speeds to uh, to ensure that that radius gets cut correctly if it's getting snagged, but the actual problem is we're not using the right tool, right? So asking yourself, okay, well, what what radius of a tool do I need in order to machine this radius correctly? And the the, the if you keep asking why, 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 why? Well, if you just added a little bit more of a radius than the, to the actual part, then the tool could easily go into that the, that edge, right? So it's a matter of keeping on asking why until you get to that. that. So, I mean, essentially what we do is we do uh, design, we do, we do uh, CNC programming, and we also do full-on, I mean, process automation if we're, the, the customer requires it. But what I wanted to build was just a company that was built around removing waste, whether it's... Uh, it overburden gets removed by automation. I mean, process waste gets removed by just eliminating it. And variability gets removed by level loading. So that was our overall goal. So what was what was your minimum viable product to? Because I, I, I've talked to Eric Reese and others in this podcast series about that idea, and you know they always emphasize. I, I think you touched on this earlier. It's not just minimum; it's viable. It's kind of yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Some I mean, value. Correct, correct. So it, our our business is a little bit different because it's more of a minimal viable service, right? So uh, in terms of we offer right now the the company is is mainly services, and we're trying to build some continuous improvement project uh, products that we can we can start giving our customers. But in terms, of, so. The overall world, uh, the problem that we saw in this one business segment we have is we do remote CNC programming, right? So if, uh, key, if a team member or a machine shop doesn't have a full-time programmer uh, or they want to get a, the G code for a particular part, right now, because of maybe a generational thing or the amount of team members on the production floor that can do machining in addition to 
do coding, so kind of a combination of an engineer and a machinist, is those are a little bit more rare than they were, say, 50 years ago, right? So a lot of machine shops are looking for outside resources to be able to machine their products correctly. So the first thing is we do is one service is we just provide G-code. So if a customer has a part that they need to get machined, they want us to uh, provide them the G-code. They send us the part. They tell us what machine that they want to send it on. And we can provide the, the, the G-code based upon whether if they want to do a lot of them, but then we'll have the right fixturing and the right tooling for it. But if they want to do a short run, we can provide them that too. So, I mean, it, our one of the minimum viable services we had was offsite remote programming. And I mean, right now it's it's been a good growth sector for us. Yeah. So then if you've got good growth, I mean, do you feel like you have, you know, as, as they call it, have you found product market fit or if you will yeah, service yeah. market I mean, fit or how, how much do you um, have, how much did you have to iterate to sort of figure out, okay, here's something that that's meeting a real need sure, and try to sure, scale sure. this while improving, of course, PDCA cycles, like you said. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the overall product in terms of starting a business, there's a few levels. Number one, do you have, a product or a service you want to offer? That's the right first question. And then the right second question is, has one person paid you for that, right? So that's the, essentially the people will talk with their finances. And the number two, the third question is, are there a lot of companies out there that are wanting to pay you for this uh, service, right? So those are step one, step two, and step three. And I mean, uh, the 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 speed at which you move from step one to step two and step three and what you learn will essentially depict how successful of a, a business owner or entrepreneur that you actually are, right? So, I mean, one of the challenges that we had was the fact that, I mean, you give a, a shop some G-code and then we're expecting it to run correctly uh, remotely uh, without being on the machine without being on the machine center right so unfortunately there fortunately there are we're, we live in a day that the you know, way to communicate digitally is significantly better than the way you could communicate digitally before so whether it's a matter of sending uh, a YouTube video or saying a video about how the machine is performing and then uploading that to a drive and and then PDCAing it from that. But we had to learn really quickly that the communication structure post-programming was very important in order for us to ensure success. And you, if you wanted to do it digitally, you have to have a good platform that allows customers to provide feedback. And I actually got this from a... And this uh, term from uh, another podcast, uh, one uh, podcast that I listen to a lot, it's called My First Million. It's a it's an entrepreneurship podcast. But one of the quotes that one of the guys on there, he, he had there, he said, a good symbol of a good company that started is you're spending a lot of time on customer support, <laughs> right? So you're spending a lot of time on customer support means someone's wanting your product <laughs> or yeah. service, right? And that's a good that's a good problem to have rather than spending a lot of time on seeing if people want what you are delivering. Right. Yeah. And and that customer support, like I think in terms of um Kinexus, you know, a company that's 10, 11 years into its um you know growth. Um, there's a lot of customer support. We have a, a, a far bigger customer support team than we have a sales team. And, you know, you'd rather, I think, have a foot in the door with customers who say, you know, the product isn't perfect, right? but it really fits our needs. And these people are willing to work with me, not just to answer questions about using it, but to take feedback about making the product better, right? So that, again, those ongoing PDSA or PDCA cycles yep. are there. Yep, absolutely. So one, one other question, you know, whether you know, it's from your background at, at Toyota or experience as an entrepreneur, like one thing I think is interesting to me is, this question of 
and I think this is Eric Reese language, persevere or pivot. But I, I see this even like in PDCA cycles in continuous improvement, where we had an idea, we're testing that idea, and now there's debate of like, is that idea not working or is it not working yet? Like sometimes that's obvious and sometimes that's painfully vague. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you would think through that question, whether it's even like a small scale improvement or with a company. When sure. is it a mistake so, to pivot too soon? When would it be a mistake to persevere too long? Yeah, I mean, so that, so I'll give you a, a kind of a, a little bit more of a personal journey and a personal story in terms of that question. So the way that I would, the two words that I would dumb entrepreneurship down to would be uh, executable creativity, right? So all we're all humans, right? We're all unique. We all, I mean, I have a unique background. You have a unique background. We're not kind of molded into one particular area, right? And we all are very good at a, a few things, and we're very good at a combination of a few things, right? So once you can find that and once you can figure out where are your creative advantages and be able to execute on that, then you will be more successful. So you're be essentially becoming authentic to yourself. So one of the, I, I mean, uh, I'll throw one more suggestion for your audience in is uh, one of the biggest learnings or the biggest area where I think the most valuable in let's say timeless advice about, about entrepreneurship is a tweet storm by a guy named Naval Ravi. And he has a tweet storm that's uh, it's called how to get rich without getting lucky. Right. Mm -hmm. And he kind of dissects some timeless principles in essential in how to create wealth and how to start a company. And one of the biggest things that he mentions is basically no one is going to be able to compete on being you than you, right? <laughs> so you can sure. escape competition through authenticity, right? So as you go uh, and figure out what you want to do in terms of starting a company, obviously you have the financial portion of whether you're growing and whether you're developing. But I would urge people this, to think about are you doing more of what you want to do with your time as an entrepreneur or are you not? And if you aren't, that's one way that I would consider pivoting because if there's one area that you want to go in, there's people that are going to be able to do that a thousand times better if they don't enjoy it. Yeah. Right. right. So if, if you don't enjoy it, so what I would say is just make sure that you're kind of productizing yourself. And that's in that tweet storm is that's, that's, that's very important to, to the growth for a company. And I think in addition, everyone understands, okay, I'm develop a product. Do people like it or not? But yeah. the other question is, am I doing more with my time that I want to be doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's that, oh, there's that diagram that, goes around on LinkedIn a lot of overlaps between, you know, in, I forget the, I don't have it in front of me. I don't have it burned in the memory, but it's looking at the, this overlap, um, a complex Venn diagram of like, you know, interest and talent and passion and yeah. what people will pay for. And, and, and I think there's got to be an overlap there. Um, but you, you, you make me think of that. And then you make me think of um, like, you know, Matthew May, former Toyota guy from, he was in LA or still in California, Toyota University. Have you ever met Matt May? I haven't met him. He was there well before you, but um, you, you guys would have a great conversation too. Um, but he, he, he talks, um, others have talked about it too. You know, starting the year, we're in January, 2023, as we record this, of not just the resolutions and the to-do list, but the, the, the stop doing list or the do less of oh, list. Yeah. It's a good time to reflect and think back whether you have a strategic A3 for yourself or not. Like, what were the things in 2022 that I loved doing? What were the things that were a drag in energy? Or, uh, you know, what, what what am I going to do less of in 2023? That 
something I'm, I'm, I won't overshare, but I'm thinking through that professionally and, yeah, and, and others might be as well. Right? Sometimes an anti-bucket list is a lot better than a bucket list <laughs> sure. because I'm completely okay never doing X. And that's yeah. a lot more liberating than, yeah. uh, than saying that I want to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And there's um, a Bare Naked Lady song that comes to mind about, oh gosh, what's the title? But there's a whole song about the things I'll, I, I, I never want to do. Which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. maybe a theme song for the um, um, episode, and I'm a huge fan, and I'm I'm having a brain cramp uh, thinking about that. But there, so there's an example of um, I'm going to come back to a phrase you used earlier because I'm trying to get better with this. Uh, nervous mind, right? <laughs> a nervous mind. It's like, yeah. am I going to um, is you know, am I going to be able to write a new a good book? Am I going to do a good episode? Am I going to be a good host. And then there's nervous in terms of my mind's bouncing around to different things. Like you're saying things that are thought provoking, the good and bad of that both um, kind of come, come through. Um, So I was going to ask you about meditation, right? So I think about that as a countermeasure to a nervous mind. Um, Share, share your story and your experiences, um, what you've learned through that. I would love to. So uh, during COVID, we, Everyone was sitting at home, right? And actually, I'll rewind back. So my journey and the person that made me made me think about whether I want to add some sort of spiritual element to to my mind was uh, I had a cousin that passed away uh, at the age of 22 of of cancer, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, I mean, he was wise beyond his years and. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest things was he he made people truly question whether they are getting what they want out of life in terms of are are you doing everything spiritually are you doing everything emotionally to to be happy right um, so I I always had this this inclination because of uh, what he had kind of taught us while he was going through his entire procedure right and. In, in addition to that, so while we were going through COVID, the, the same person that I had talked to you about, uh, this guy, Naval Ravikant, had this challenge that said, uh, it's a 60-day challenge. So well, six, this, the challenge for the 60 days is you need to be able to sit in a room with your eyes closed and not do anything for one hour. So Wow. That's, so that's I... Tough. I, I, I decided to do it and I, I, I felt that there was value in it due to a, a lot of the spiritual uh, thoughts and inclinations that I had in the, in the past. So I, I decided to do it and wow, it was really hard. It was absolutely hard. You have no idea the amount of thoughts and regrets and everything that are and desires that just cloud your mind that uh, you're carrying around with you every day that you just don't know about right but then after after a while it became a lot easier and i I was wondering i mean i i still do i still meditate for anywhere from let's say uh, 30 minutes to an hour every day Mm -hmm. and I'm, do you tend to do that in the morning or before bed? Right when I wake I up. Out. Right when you wake up. Right when I wake up. Yep. Uh, and I'm, I'm I'm wondering why, how did it get easier over time? I felt like it would get harder over time. So the, the example that I would, uh, I have a few examples here. So the first example is think of your mind like a bathtub, right? And then you have a few things. You have oil. The, and you have oil, right? So oil is all of the regrets you have in your life, uh, all of the uh, desires that you have in your life that just keep accumulating over time, right? And then you have water. And water is your everyday life. It's uh, you're building your company, picking people up from school. You have... Uh, a lot of social obligations and you have, you know, life just, just, this happens. Right. And unfortunately what keeps happening is we have this layer of oil, right. That is on the top, but as life progresses, we keep putting water into our bathtub and, but we, we aren't 
spending enough time draining any of it. We aren't spending enough time processing any of it. So what meditation does is it opens a valve at the bottom and it allows stuff to slowly, slowly, the oil to slowly, slowly go to the bottom. And if you keep doing it long enough, then the valve keeps getting bigger and the flow rate starts getting improved. And, and then you can start clearing that oil. And then once you start clearing that oil, that's that's when you have a, a lot more of a clear mind. So this is part of how a mechanical engineer thinks through meditation. Yeah, yeah, Valves yeah. and flow and I, I yeah, have fluid exactly. dynamics. But, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So essentially what meditation is doing is it's, allowing you to clear that oil from your mind. And uh, you, by you doing that, you have a lot more of a clear mind and a lot more of a clear thought, right? So uh, I'll give you another uh, kind of ex example. Is let's say you're going through life. Uh, what meditation or, and just thought assessment allows you to do is to treat your mind a lot like your body, right? So if you get a cut, right? When I get a cut, I'm obviously the pain from the cut hurts, right? Yeah. But then I, I, I cut not... myself the other day in the kitchen cutting an onion. Yeah. Be careful holding up that finger for those on YouTube. <laughs> but anyway, sorry. So, so no problem. So you got cut, right? But then your mind is obviously it hurts from the cut, right? But mm -hmm. then you're not really thinking of whether you are going to recover from that cut, are you? you I know it wasn't that bad. I I I, I don't need stitches. Yeah, uh, you know it'll eventually get better. It still hurts, but it's going to heal. Yeah, you know it, that exact comment is you know it's going to heal, right? But unfortunately, when stuff happens to our mind, we don't think that way. Well, if something negative happens to your mind, right, and you think, oh man. I had this person do this bad thing to me or something that I, I, I didn't perform the way I wanted to perform. So you, you essentially have a cut in your mind. So you're worried about two things. You're worried about the cut that's in your mind, but you're also worried about the fact that the cut's going to keep being there. And you know, the, the true fact is that the cut's not going to be there forever. Right? So it's you to basically treat these uh, thoughts and negative emotions that go on in your mind a lot more like a physical cut because you don't really worry about the physical cut being there forever. So it's been uh, one of the greatest things that I've had, I've had to do in my life is to uh, start this meditation process. And I mean, my wife does it too. And I mean, we would definitely, it's an individual process, but it's good to have somebody to, to share it with. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that it's been maybe the best thing that I've taken into account because fortunately or unfortunately, this mind that I have, uh, uh, barring any large AI breakthrough, I'm going to have this mind for the rest of my life, <laughs> right? And right. if I don't take care of it, then it's 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 not going to be a happy life. Yeah, and that's 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 important. Yeah. So when the, there was this challenge to do 45 to 50 minutes, I, I, that would be terrifying. I feel I, I wouldn't be able to do it. You know, I've, I've had a guest before, uh, Bob Moore, who's a psychologist who talks about Kaizen and, um, mm -hmm. if you will, challenge, you know, breaking it down the baby steps, right? So his advice, thinking back to his books and his episode would be like, somebody were to propose this to me. I've tried meditating during the pandemic. I, I did the app. I tried the app. It was free. I tried it and I'm like, I just can't, I can't do this. And, and, you know, Bob Moore would say, okay, if it sounds terrifying to try to do 30 minutes, try to do two, right. And mm -hmm. then sort of prove yourself, okay, I could do two. And then like, I would expect it to get easier. Did, yeah. did, did you think of a baby steps approach or did you try to dive right in and say, I'll, yeah, I'll get so better at doing 45 to 60 minutes? Yeah, I have a, I guess, I don't know if it's a different uh, opinion or uh, so, a lot of the way your mind works is cause effect. So I started this X amount of thing, right? And that should help me in this particular area of my life, right? And unfortunately, you're never going to think in your mind that this meditation helped because it's not going to become 
helpful until it becomes a little bit more of a habit. Right. 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 The so same would be gonna, true with physical exercise, right? Yeah, Two minutes of exactly. exercise a day isn't helpful, but then if you can build yourself up to a level that's helpful, whether it's meditation or exercise, it's better to work your way up to it than to be intimidated and not try. Yep. But I'm sorry, I cut off your... No, 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 no problem. So sorry, a, a sorry. very, very similar example is I got to a point where I was I was meditating, obviously, for quite a bit of time. And then I got to a point that my mind was very clear. And I almost asked myself, why am I, why is my mind so clear right now? And then I'm like, wait a minute, I started this thing about uh, 45 days to 50 days ago that was supposed to help me with my mind. So it's almost just like a personal risk that you have to be okay with taking it. And you have to trust that the what you're trying to do is worth it or not. But I mean, unfortunately, it's just a personal risk. So you're, you, you are taking that risk. You know, I could have spent... I mean, I've been doing it for quite a bit of time now. So I take that and multiply that amount of years. And, you know, I could have had uh, multiple full-time jobs of just (laughs) done done a lot more for a lot of things, but it it was just a personal risk. And it's lower risk. It's it's risk of opportunity cost or wasted time. It's not like something physical where if I were to go and try to run a marathon tomorrow, I would probably physically hurt myself because <laughs> yeah. I'm not a runner. I exercise, but I, I, I don't, I, I, I'm not training for that. Um, but yeah, the risk of trying is low. Um, that mitigates the risk of it being a mistake. Yeah. But I, when you think of like the difficulty in cause and effect relationships, like the field of system dynamics, as they teach it at MIT and other places, is that humans really struggle to understand cause and effect when there are delays or lags, right? If I I dropped this coffee mug on my foot, it would hurt immediately. I would understand my foot hurts because I dropped this mug. Now, like my my situation, um, and I've had a recent discovery around, I think cause and effect, persevere or pivot um, has been more around lower back pain. That's harder to ascribe a root cause to, right? I've yeah. done physical therapists and describing different symptoms. And the one physical therapist said, that's weird. Okay, <laughs> thanks. Great. Um, I've stumped the physical therapist. Um, so she suggested different countermeasures. But the one sporadic countermeasure I hadn't been disciplined enough about was yoga. Mm-hmm. Right? So my wife was kind of you know pushing me to do this. And so here's what I think I've learned is like doing it a couple times a week or sometimes going a couple weeks without it. Like, well, it's not really helping. Well, I wasn't really doing it. But then back in December, I made a commitment to it. Um, I'm up to 33 consecutive days of about 30 minutes of um, yin yoga is what I've really kind of gotten into. Mm -hmm. So now that's kind of halfway between, you know, um, meditation and yoga right? You're holding poses a very long time. I'm fidgety. So like being able to stay still is helpful in addition to stretching my lower back. But now I got about 20 days into it. I'm like, now I'm seeing the effect. And instead of it feeling like something I should do, I'm excited to do it. And I would like, you know, I want to keep that, that momentum. Yeah. And uh, the excitement, absolutely. I I know, I know it feels really weird to say, but the, 30 minutes to an hour that I spend with myself every day is once that becomes one of the best things you ever do, <laughs> yeah. the world has kind of a little less to offer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can participate in a lot of this stuff, but I mean, and obviously I love everyone that I've surrounded myself with, but it's, it's just an amazing journey. And I mean, I've learned a lot from, uh, from this, uh, a 60 day challenge. And this, it, it's a, the art of uh, doing nothing. I think that's the tweet storm by this guy. Naval okay. I'll look that up to um, the art of doing, doing nothing. nothing. Great. Well, um, so I won't ask it. Well, you've already answered the question though. Okay. This wasn't the best 60 minutes of your day, Mitt, but thank you for surrounding yourself <laughs> <laughs> with me and the list. It, it was awesome, Mark. I appreciate you um, doing it and sharing, you know, kind of this, this mix of perspectives. And, and I just love it. You know, you're connecting dots when people would ask, you know, how are ideas uh, from a manufacturing company transferable? People in the startup realm, 
are still, you know, we're still trying to, you know, convince them there's something of benefit in healthcare. There's a lot of people asking, um, how do we know if there's benefit? And there's something to be said for try it and see, be committed to other what you know, committed to it, whether it's meditation or yoga or lean. Like maybe there's a lesson or a final point here of like, don't do it half asked, don't do it sporadically. At some point, you've really got to commit to it, or otherwise you might not see results. Absolutely. Trust yourself, be patient. And I mean, if you don't see yourself doing something for a long term and may not be good for you to start it. So, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a great journey. And I mean, you know, we all have uh, this, we all have our lives and might as well do what we can to make them better. Well said. So um, our guest today, again, has been Mitt, Mitt Vias. He is the managing director for Gemba Automation. Go check out his website, gembaautomation.com. Final, final question. Like, you know, who, you know, people um, listening fit certain profiles. You know, who are the people most likely to benefit from coming and learning about your services? Sure. So uh, in terms of the people that I feel would, I would say, if you are starting your professional journey as an engineer, I think that this would be a very good uh, podcast for you to listen to. And I mean, no, but I mean to go check out your company. Oh yeah, absolutely. go check out okay. Gemba Automation. Sure. So if you are a company that has a machine shop, uh, you're a company that uh, manufactures a product that gets designed in SolidWorks, Autodesk, Inventor or you are a company that uh, needs some more support in automation on production floor. So uh, our three major segments are engineering services, uh, manufacturing automation, and machine shop solutions. So anyone that would fit in those uh, categories, I'd be happy to discuss how we could remove some waste in your organization. All right, well, so again, you can go check that out, Gemba automation.com. Mitt Vias, thank you so much for being a guest here today. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was awesome, Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpod.